Hello and welcome to the Meetcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Meet's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable recipes of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Anthony. I'm Miles. I'm Chun. I'm Red. This week, Alex talked with Chris Melisinos, uh, one of the brains behind the Smithsonian's 2012 Art of Video Games exhibition. They deep dive into the story of the exhibit. They talk about video games as art, uh, philosophy of the medium, and much, much more. Uh, this was a fantastic interview. Uh, it And it really kind of like captures one of the inspirations of why we do what we do here at The Maid, uh, trying to preserve a history and because these are stories of art and like questioning humanity and their e examinations of everything about life and what we can do beyond it's there's like not as there's no limitations with video games uh, to explore different concepts and everything you can imagine your own worlds all the time but before we get into that interview it is time to get into a little bit of news. Uh, Pokemon Unite is coming to mobile, coming, uh, I believe, tomorrow, the September 22nd, uh, with a Gengar, uh, sorry, astronaut Gengar costume upgrade. Uh, so look out for that if you'd like to play some Pokemon Unite on your mobile device. Uh, in other news, we also have a Wolverine game in the works, which was announced at the uh, PlayStation the PlayStation Direct Expo the other day. Uh, it's just a little teaser trailer, but it's made by Insomniac, the same people that made uh, Ratchet & Clank, uh, Spider-Man, and Miles Morales, the expansion too. So it should be very, very cool. So also, what do you guys... Uh, we also thought about this uh, chip shortage that we've been having currently. So also, what do you guys think about this? Uh, the IDC reportedly said that uh, the chip shortage could turn into a chip oversupply by 2023. I mean, I think it's just good news for the rest of us. That could be a good news for consumers because now everything with chips is just the price is skyrocketing. <laughs> Like the, the cards yeah. or the displaying card, they're just too expensive for now. Just a little too expensive, but I mean, we'll see. It'll be nice. I mean, also, it, it'll be coming kind of coming in line with uh, personally how I feel about the PS5 and just next generation consoles. There's nothing driving me to purchase them at the moment. There's no real console exclusives that are enticing enough. But if you want a little taste of it, Chun's already got it started by just purchasing the DualSense, the new controller. I do it, and I thought it works on PS4 too, but I was wrong. Oh. But that feels great on PC. But for now, okay. I, I would just rather spend my money on Doritos rather than in real chips. Yeah, you can, you, you can get other games or better controllers. You don't need to get a new console right now. Yeah, cool. I mean, for me, I don't. Cool is yeah, the best. I, yeah, I mean, for me with the new consoles, I don't even have a 4K television yet, and I'm just trying to 
I'm just waiting to buy that before I get into the new console thing. And also, you know, a couple more games. We got Horizon Forbidden West coming out, which is a draw for me, and God of War Ragnarok with the bulky Thor, uh, which is, there is this British, I forget the name, but there's this British uh, power lifter that was saying that uh, the bulky Thor is actually what you what the kind of body you would have if you were going to be one of the strongest people because most power lifters that are lifting more of their body weight aren't ripped or cut they're bulky to have just mass amounts of muscle and lift everything <laughs> like giant round stones <laughs> i mean yeah like if like you watched if you watched the olympics at all like those those heavy like heavy weightlifter people are not like they don't look like bodybuilders like bodybuilders are not really the strongest people you can find like they look strong because they have like intentionally sculpted their bodies to look that way Mm -hmm. but that's not like just the best you can do it's it's building for aesthetic versus building for you know effectiveness and so looking at weightlifters from Scandinavia or, you know, like the mountain from Game of Thrones, like these are big dudes. Yeah. Just massive, massive yeah. and just, yeah. Or, you know, like sumo wrestlers, it's, like people think sumo wrestlers are fat, but that's all muscle. Sure. All of it's all muscle, all of it, even the jiggly parts. <laughs> like they are very strong, but yes, they need that bulk up for grippage. So. Now, on that lovely note, I think we also got to ha- talk a little bit about, well, at least uh, Age of Empires 4 uh, just had their stress test ended yesterday, uh, the 20th of September. So there, we'll see what how their servers held up and what we can expect in the future about that, which is also not a series that I'm too all too familiar with, other than it's kind of like a legacy game at this point. Uh, it's just been around for a very long time and... It's a very interesting strategy. I played a lot of Age of Empires 3. Um, hmm. Geez, back in 2004, 2005? It's a while when ago. Was that? It was a long time ago. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm very excited to see a new Age of Empires game. Like, I'm not usually a big um, for... It's not a 4X. It's a um, RTS, basically. Mm. Um, okay. I'm not a huge RTS person because I just do not have the macro control for it. Um, yeah, but age of empires back when I was, you know, 10 was exactly my speed. It was a lot of fun. So I'm interested in seeing what they do with, you know, 15 years under their belt of new technology (laughs) and and innovation. We should see, hopefully it's, hopefully they've upgraded it a bit, but it is time that we throw it over to Chris Melisinos and, uh, Alex, uh, with their talk about this marvelous Art of Video Games exhibit in the Smithsonian. So here they are, Alex and Chris Melisinos. And we are here with Chris Melisinos. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me on the program. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. So, I mean, you're the guy who did the Smithsonian exhibit. Well, I was one of the people that helped put together that that exhibition. Absolutely. Yeah, the Art of Video Games exhibition that launched in March of 2012 at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. So, uh, yeah. What was it like dealing with a gigantic museum entity 
that I, uh, from what I had heard at the time, was struggling to understand video games at an archival level. So it was, you know, what I found is the industry, the uh, the museum was actually very receptive to the idea of exploring new forms of art, um, new, um, you know, new mediums that they may not have considered previously. And really how this came about, my involvement came about was uh, I was involved in a program they did back in 2009 um, called uh, Smithsonian 2.0. So the then incoming Secretary Wayne Clough uh, said, hey, we need to bring together technologists from across the, the industry to help us modernize, really understand how to go ahead and engage. And so uh, it was myself and about 15 or so other you know, technologists and evangelists across the technology spectrum. So it was Microsoft and, and folks from MySpace and Facebook and a whole variety of, of people. And um, what had happened was we sat through three days of all of the, the ephemera uh, that the museum had, and, uh, uh, it, and, and it was awesome. And we got to this plenary session, and everyone said, oh, you need to write more blogs, and you need to, to do more videos. And I said, look, I will respectively disagree, respectfully disagree with many of my colleagues. I've spent time with, with curators here for the past three days. You want to curate. I said, but what you need to understand is that every day you have scores of kids that come in on these buses and where are they living? They're living in Nintendo DSs and they're living in their mobile phone. And you're asking them to play in your playground, but you're refusing to meet them in theirs. So what are the, the, the forms of media, the forms of entertainment, forms of art, forms of education that are important to this, you know, rising tide of patrons, right? That would, that would come into the museum. And that's when the discussion turned to, well, what do you think about video games? Do you feel they're an art form? Like, are you kidding me? Of course they are, right? So that kicked off a wonderful set of meetings with um, Elizabeth Brune, who was the head of the, the American Art Museum at the time. And that turned into three months, actually a little longer, closer to six months, of coming back into the museum and framing video games in a way that made sense for an art museum, right? To, to understand that beneath, uh, you know, just the surface level of the game, there are messages here, there are stories being told, there are reflections of our society, there's, there's ambition and hope and art and all these things that are imbued in video games, you, but you need to spend time with them to discover them, right? It's not like looking at a painting or even skimming the cover of a book or, or, or viewing a movie for an hour and a half. It requires our attention. So again, they were super receptive to the idea. And once we were able to frame the discussion in a way that helped them connect with it, then we were off to the races. And it was a huge amount of support by them to get it done. See, that's an interesting point you raised there because connecting with a piece of art in something like the New York MoMA or the SF MoMA or even the Hirshhorn or something, yeah, you could sit down for an hour and a half in front of you know a Degas or, or something, but people don't generally do that. Uh, but you need to be able, I guess, to accommodate that for people who really want to delve into these interactive mediums. Exactly. And what I learned, I learned a whole lot, right? So it was almost like taking a masterclass in like museum and curatorial studies, right? Had the experience that I had there. You know, you have to kind of set up the exhibition for 90 second pieces. Like that's about as much time as most people stand in front of an object and um, kind of experience it or engage with it. We found that to not be the case when it came to this exhibition. There were people that I met through the course of its six-month run in Washington 
that said they come there every day on their lunch break, right? Just to sit and and be kind of transported back to a, a moment or point in time where that art form meant the most to them. And it's not just about the the games that they were playing. It's who they were playing with, where they were playing, where they were at that moment in their life. And so it's an extremely personal uh, kind of, you know, exhibition uh, for so many people that came came through it. I mean, it's it, it was an incredible honor to have been part of that and to help bring that into existence. And, you know, to this day, you know, here we are 10 years later, and the Smithsonian still does this pop-up arcade every year in the main courtyard of the American Art Museum, and it is just packed full house every year that they do it. So we've helped to make video games part of the discussion around art and its importance in society. And I think one of the things that gets lost a little bit is, you know, there's certainly an experiential aspect of going to a gallery, seeing the Mona Lisa, and maybe you did that with somebody, but that is not as powerful as having sat down and played the video game and grown up with another person playing that game. I, I still have, you know, friends I talk to to this day. We talk about playing Contra and Jackal, right? The experience is not just the game. It's the experience you had with another person. Exactly. And so, you know, part of the the thesis, this three-voice kind of thesis um, that we built the exhibition around, I would often ask this series of questions. So if you don't mind, I'd like to try it with you, okay? Oh, great, yeah. All right, so can you tell me what was the very first video game system you had at home that you remember vividly? The Atari ST. Okay, the Atari ST. Do you remember where it was in your home? It was in a room in the upper right-hand corner of the box that the house was. and It was pretty much dedicated to that in a bit. And do you remember, was the uh, was the ST sitting on a desk or did you have to kind of pull it out on the floor? No, it was on a desk. Okay. It was like a work desk. And then what was it connected to? Was it a monitor or was it a television? It's a monitor like that one right there. <laughs> okay. Um, do you remember what the desk looked like? Yeah, it was brown, fake wood. Awesome. And do you remember the chair that you sat in when you... That I do not remember. It was on the other side of me, not facing. <laughs> it's not, not facing it, but it wasn't a hard chair. It was maybe something, a soft chair, something with I, arms. I have, I have no recollection. All right. That, that, one we'll go ahead, <laughs> that one we'll go ahead and, and, and pull from. Um, can you remember anything else about the room? Color of the carpeting, flooring? You know, Yellow sticks with I, I know it wasn't yellow. I know it was beige, but yellow sticks with me as a color in that room. Awesome. And, uh, I remember the floppy disk boxes. I remember a lot about that. Awesome. So now tell me all the same detail when you experienced your favorite book, movie, or record for the first time. Yeah, I don't have those things. Uh, the movie, I could tell you the theater. I couldn't tell you what it was like in the theater. It was dark. Right. <laughs> but I could tell Point. you they had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game in the arcade outside. There you go, right? And so look, I, I believe that the reason that we're able to wrap the environment um, into those memories is because video games were each one of them is an encapsulated universe that sits behind glass. So we can affect it and, and we can impart our will onto it and we can we can manipulate it, but we, we couldn't be in it. So the, the viewport into that world encompassed everything around you. All of those pieces of ephemera are wrapped up in the memory of using those things. And I believe it's, again, it's because um, we have some agency in using games and, and, and engaging in that type of an experience, but it still sits apart from us, right? It doesn't exist in this world. It's adjacent. Um, and so, you know, again, it, it demands more of our attention, demands more time. It demands 
um, engagement and not just one particular form of engagement, but several, right? It's auditory, it's visual, it's kinesthetic. Um, it may even be tactile, depending on whether or not you were using manuals or cheat guides or things like that as you play. So again, as an art form, it just engages so much more of, uh, uh, again, of our senses and our, our place in space at the moment we, we played them, that they're kind of wrapped up in the memory as well. And and it also unites people. I mean, people are brought together over these things. There's this this common thread in the media that games are violent or evil or, or antisocial. When I think quite the opposite is true. They're quite peaceful when they work. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, we can apply the same sort of lens to just about anything. You know, and I I love to point out to people that you know, chess is a game of war. It's a game of complete domination, right? And, and to the point where you push, you know, your opponent into basically, you know, uh, giving up and, and, and you know, laying down and say, okay, you won. Right. But we don't, we don't view it as such. We view it as an intellectual pursuit. We view it as something good in the world because we've had enough time to kind of homogenize it and sanitize it and, and tease it apart and understand what the mechanics were underneath. Right. Um, I, I view video games in the same way. Remember, we're still only about what, 50 years young, Right, it's just going to take time. Absolutely, and and uh, the Smithsonian's work to you know highlight this as an art form and not necessarily in say like uh, the American History Museum or some other place like that. Right, it, it really makes a big statement. Yeah, it, it does, and you know to their credit, right, the Smithsonian, which is a collection of museums, right. So there's a, there's a whole variety of museums. I think it's something like sixteen or eighteen total museums and facilities under the Smithsonian umbrella. Um, they do collect in the American History Museum, they do collect video game ephemera and pieces, right? Ralph Baer's original brown box is there with a recreation, I believe, of the, um, the environment in his basement where he created it. I was fortunate enough to have visited Ralph when he was with us at his home and play against him on the original 1965 prototype before it went to the Smithsonian. Wow, well, I bet he kicked just, your butt. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of these things where I, I won the first two times just because of where things were positioned. And when I've done talks at like schools and things, people, you know, kids are always like, why did you beat that nice old man at his game? I'm like, I didn't do anything. You know, we just started the game. But, um, you know, so they, they do collect the, these, these materials. They have the original um, system that Space Wars was uh, uh, created on as well as part of the collection. But being in the American Art Museum, is different because it's not just about the artifact itself. It's about its impact as an art form. It's impact on on the society that that played and engaged in those games, and it was a, again a tremendous honor. And it's work that they still do, you know, and continue to do to this day. Yeah, like a, a piece of art can be, even though these things are placed contextually, a piece of art can be appreciated without the context. Whereas if you go to the American History Museum and you see Archie Bunker's chair without a label that says it's Archie Bunker's chair, you're like, what is this old chair? Who cares, right? Exactly. But, you know, a video game or the Mona Lisa or, you know, a, a sculpture, you can ostensibly, you can engage with that without uh, an engagement point that is a piece of paper explaining it. Certainly there's a lot of work in modern art where you have to be explained what the thing you're looking at is. But like, Video games fall squarely into that category. Oh, exactly. I mean, people that stand in front of a Jackson Pollock painting, if they didn't know who Jackson Pollock was or his technique, they would go, 
well, this is just stuff that my kids could do in school, you know, splashing paint. Everywhere. It's like, well, actually, no, they can't. But you need to understand, you know, the, the, what the, the tech, what Pollock's technique was and, and the perspective he gave when, when painting those things. It requires more. Um, games, uh, video games specifically, use uh, kind of universally understood language of, of control of movement. It's one of the things that we talked about in the exhibition was kind of the echoes of those mechanics right, from generation to generation. One of the things I love to draw the line from and to is you look at Pitfall Harry in the original Pitfall game on the Atari VCS, and then you look at Nathan Drake, and you're ostensibly in the same environment. Obviously, one is uh, much more detailed. It doesn't require explanation. But the cadence by which both protagonists move through the environment, right, it, they're, um, they're kind of sweet of... Uh, of maneuverability and and motion and and these sorts of things mirror each other, and so we see those echoes of design that were laid down in the earliest forms of video games still persist to this day, right? And it's just it's fun to go back and watch the evolution of those things because you know if one of the things that we run into all the time too is well you know those old games are they any good? No, the the, the older games that have the right mechanics, the right play, the the right level of engagement. Those frameworks persist because they're good. And now we live in an era where tools are readily available, you know, incredibly powerful tools are readily available to anybody for virtually nothing, for anybody to go ahead and create the games and art and, and kind of, you know, put them into the world. But again, you know, the, the, the framing of those games still fall back on the type of games that were built at the beginning of the, the games industry. And it's uh, it's just awesome to see. Yeah, no, that's the genre thing. People talk about, you know, that games can get locked into the, the first-person shooters or the, you know, the fighting styles, but that's because the genres sort of evolve, right? They're evolving every day with new mechanics that are invented, but usually nowadays by the indie scene, right? Like as these new mechanics come bubbling up and get refined and, and integrated into these bigger games. It's an interesting, it's almost like the film industry used to be, right? Like, you know, Quentin Tarantino bubbles up and, you know, gets its gritty movies made. And... Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think what's um, what's great, too, is we're at a point now where artists are not limited by the technology, by and large. So now they start imposing limitations on themselves to create new forms of art, right? Whereas when you look at um, the original Missile Command and when you understand that the designer, um, you know, the the he was making a statement about the Cold War. He he refused to make a game of aggression. It was about a game of defense. And that was based on what he observed going on in the world at the time. In fact, uh, David Thur is, is, is his name. And he, um, you know, stated that I, ref, you know, refused to fire nuclear missiles at the USSR. So even his language places of the moment in time in which he was creating what he was observing in the world. The six major cities were meant to represent the six major cities in California. And he suffered from night terror of nuclear annihilation for over two years. So, by the way, this, this unpacking of that work is one of the things that also helped um, several people at the American Art Museum to understand that the messages behind these things that were seemingly benign were much deeper. Now, back then, you would not know that just walking up to a missile command cabinet. Today, we can describe that in incredible exacting detail. So it doesn't require additional artwork or a comic book or somebody to narrate that story. It's, you know, it is just present. It, it just is. And that's why I love when you see games like Thomas Was Alone, 
Mm, right? Here's yes. this awesome puzzler platformer game with super deep emotion, all tied to geometric shapes. Right? You extract the, you know, the the, the real world, you know, uh, personification of a human being and these characters, and the the creators just distilled it down into individual line segments and shapes, and it was still able to carry forward emotion and empathy um, through the storytelling. And I think that's wonderful, right? It wasn't about the technology. It was about using technology in a way to create new stories, new ideas, where they, you limit yourself to create new art. That's awesome. Absolutely. I mean, Peter Molyneux said he wanted to do something where you cared about a cube, right? Or a, a box, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, so he just didn't make Thomas. Somebody else made it. So yep. he was right. Uh, I, before we're uh, done here, I wanted to see what, what, what are you, what's going on? What are you writing? You got any books out there? What's going on? So, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever extract myself fully from, uh, you know, game preservation and, and helping to continue to move the medium forward. I do believe, as I did, you know, back when we launched the exhibition, um, which, you know, by the way, also traveled to 10 other museums for three and a half years around the country, breaking attendance records at almost every museum. And what it helped those museums to understand is this is part of the public consciousness, right? This is a multi-generational art form. And it's one that we need to continue to, to better understand and make sure that we are um, not dismissing it on its surface, but really spending time to dig into it. So I don't think I'll ever stop doing that. And to that end, um, I was asked to participate and, and write a piece for Van Burnham's uh, new book, Supercade, which is the follow-on to, I think it's 2.0, which is the follow-on to original Supercade book. Uh, and one of the books that inspired me to start pursuing museums uh, and talking about preservation. Um, so I was uh, you know, honored and, and delighted to have contributed to that. I also sit on the board of the Video Game History Foundation, and they're yay. at yay, and they're <laughs> at gamehistory.org, um, founded by you know, a longtime game archivist and historian Frank Cifaldi. And you know, the mission is uh, of the Video Game History Foundation is to not just preserve uh, the video game them itself. We have so many wonderful museums that, that do this, but it's also to preserve the ephemera, the pieces of material around those games and to make sure that they are, are not only archived, but are then made accessible to researchers and historians in, in a proper manner. So it's everything from video game books to sales reports to you know uh, games that were never released Video Game History Foundation is doing a wonderful job uh, of, you know, preserving our history while we still have the vast majority of the people who founded the industry with us. And it's a rare thing um, to have a, a medium that is so beloved, so adopted by the planet and still be young enough to have most of the creators with us. Now is the time when we can actually catalog our accurate and correct history and not leave it up right to future generations to tell those stories. So go check out gamehistory.org. They're doing tremendous work. Um, and uh, they have all kinds of, they have a great shop. You can go get video game, uh, the Video Game History Foundation merch and all that other stuff in there. So definitely swing on by gamehistory.org. Yeah, no, Frank is terrific. We love Frank. We sent, uh, when we packed everything into storage, we sent him a whole, like, he was like, "No, stop! This is too much." You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the one of the byproducts of doing this work. A uh, last little story is, you know, um, 
one of the a very popular video game magazine basically went under and they said i was re- reached out to uh by one of the former executives and they said hey you know you're a games history guy perhaps you can help us find a home for this we were able to bring in the entire archive of GamePro and then move it into the video game history foundation uh, uh, yeah the video game history foundation so the entire digital archive of GamePro now sits oh the digital within, archive i was like yeah what? we got the so we have the no, physical archive of yeah so we have all of the <laughs> the know. actual quark uh you know um uh, layouts and everything else all all digital nice. and we were oh, able to awesome. move that in so we can preserve that going forward that's right? awesome because those that that the way that those are preserved now is just guys with scanners cutting up old magazines right and the original quark files can show you the original screenshots i remember frank trying to trans- tra- trace a prototype pokemon shot off of mo drive at some point he's amazing <laughs> I'll tell you the, the the one thing I was able to pull up. First thing I went after was let me see that Dreamcast Half Life piece that was ah. written but never pu- never published, and I was <laughs> able to reconstitute the whole thing and be able to see right at that moment in time. This is what they were saying about it. This is what could have been. And again, this is the importance of preserving our history while we have the ability to do so. And again, the people that created that history are still here with us. So uh, yeah, super fortunate to be involved. Well, Chris Milicinos, thanks you for so much for being here today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So I, we, I could take a four more hours of your time, but I won't do that to you or your I, listeners. But. I wish we could. We'll have you back at some point. We're going to find more things to do in the podcast other than just, you know, random blathering. We'll have a, like a topic <laughs> next time. Thanks That'd for stopping great. by. My pleasure. Thank you. So thank you very much, Chris Milicinos, for joining us and with that lovely talk. You're you, the, your love for video games and like the exhibition that you helped curate and show what it means to kind of all of us uh, as career gamers. Uh, it, some of the best stories that I've ever heard or witnessed have all have come from video games too. It's not just movies or books or anything. It is a full art form that makes you feel and think and live it's marvelous i love video games almost as much as chris melisinos does (laughs) but at the end of this episode we need to talk a little bit about what we've all been playing so updates Chun's switched off from final fantasy no i'm still i'm still i'm still going to talk about final fantasy just uh, it's not about <laughs> playing that, but just a, a while ago, uh, there's news coming out for the next expansion. I mean, the 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 updates on next expansion's contents, which is the job changes, and I'm really surprised that mm. they make so much changes on some of the jobs, like summoner, which oh, I gotta save it because if I just set all the names people are not going to understanding what i'm saying but basically um people meme about summer to be a dot placer because most of your dps just based on how many damage on time you put and all you can summon is just a, a dragon and a phoenix and the others are just pretty tiny and not too flashy but in the next expansion they gotta have a lot more of the flashy moves and a lot more thing to summon, which is a good thing. Mm, okay, because that is one of the job I play. Yeah. 
No. How many um, creatures can you summon? Let me count. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, yeah. There's five different five? of them. Yeah. What? Like all at once? No, no, no. Of course not. It's like a rotation. Oh. <laughs> so it's like it's like Pokemon. You've got your team of five, and you yeah, send exactly. one out. So there's a dragon and there's a phoenix. Hey, they released five on fives. A dragon and a phoenix is the is I think they're the bigger one. They're the other part of the rotation, and then there's three out of them, which is inside another rotation. It's like, and oh god, I I, I gotta stop explaining the mechanics. It's gotta be too complex for anyone who don't don't know anything about it. But I just want to say it was exciting, and the new jobs, uh, <laughs> Sage, and there's another one, Reaper, which is like a death with a huge size. They all have so many flashy moves, and I am really excited for them. It, they look very cool. It's gonna be putting your your new your new graphics card to the test with these flashy moves. Yeah, I think they gotta put off the support for PS4 someday. They used to do that for PS3 just to upgrade the graphics of the game. Yeah. Someday they would do it <laughs> like, on yeah, PS4. Yeah, we're not going to support this one. I can we'll as- understand it. The graphic is really becoming yeah. better and it's, better. It's, yeah, I mean, it's but it's like, again, it's what we're seeing with a new generation of consoles, too, that we talked about earlier. I mean, they're still releasing... Some of the new titles that they're releasing for the new consoles are also being released on an older generation, so they're not really... It's not like necessarily an enticement to buy the new console if you can get these awesome games also on your previous console. But they're still fun, and I'm sure they're still going to get like an upgrade with the PlayStation 5. We'll see how much of a difference it makes with the game, both games being playable on both. Uh, it'll be an interesting future to see. But, man, I keep saying but this episode. Why is it but? It's not a but. We just want to thank you. We just want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Enter- uh, Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We would like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patient supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patient donors get to listen to this podcast one week before its release on major streaming services, and we continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chin. I'm Miles. I'm Red. I'm Anthony. Thanks. (laughs) 